Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Thank you for sending all your questions and please keep them coming through to me. I'll share a little bit more about how you can do that in just a while. But for now, it's time to say good morning and welcome to the man who helps us understand what markets are reacting to and how an investor thinks. Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. All right. So the latest on the debt ceiling um, tug tug of war in the U.S. is the Democrats have signaled they're going to take up Mitch McConnell's offer, Senate Republican leader, to raise the U.S. debt ceiling in December. That could immediately alleviate the risk of default, but it raises the prospect of another fight politically that could happen at the end of the year. The debt limit basically caps the total amount of allowable outstanding U.S. federal debt. And uh, their implications, of course, uh, if if that debt limit does not move or um, the federal government lacks the cash to pay all of its obligations. But we wanted to help understand what this means for the investor. Should we stay calm regarding the debt ceiling wrangling? I mean, in, in a simple one-word answer, I would say yes. <laughs> the rationale being very simply from, you know, the last like 80, 90 odd years, this debt ceiling has been lifted more than a hundred times. That's just the way, you know, the, the way the thing entire like debt ceiling is structured. That's how it is. So from the aspect of, you know, the Democrats versus the Republicans, things have become a lot more hairy in the past 10 years. And that's especially literally like back in 2011, when there was a two day lockdown, because, you know, for the first time, uh, the debt ceiling was not extended. It was pushed back a little bit. There was a credit downgrade for the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. Uh, Treasury bonds, caused a huge mess in the equity markets. Right, I think the markets corrected like five or six percent just that day. The bottom line, though, is this is just typical posturing between the Democrats and the Republicans. By the eleventh hour, I personally think that it's going to get you know extended once again, kicking the can down the road. December is the short, like present in two months is the short-term stint. After that, it's going to get pushed back to the midterm elections, give or take. And then it'll just keep happening like that. So from the perspective of a more longer term investor, I don't think there's anything to be too concerned about. What is the big deal that must be done? I mean, what is what are the consequences of a U.S. default? Is it really catastrophic? If there is actually a true default, it is definitely catastrophic. The simple reason being is, okay. taking a step back, right? The U.S. government basically spends a lot more than it earns in taxes. So what it has to do is it has to issue bonds or debt to try to make up for that capital shortfall. That's the job of the Treasury. The Treasury sits and issues trillions of dollars of U.S. Treasury bonds. Currently, I think it's around $28 trillion outstanding. The bottom line, though, is the world loves the U.S. dollar. Like every single aspect of finance and trade is primarily done using that as the base currency. All financial models, be it uh, option pricing, be it uh, credit risk of other countries, corporates, etc., is all pegged to the U.S. Treasury because in finance, that's in like finance models, it's classified as the risk-free rate. There is no concept of if the risk-free rate suddenly becomes not risk-free, right? So from that aspect, the way we know modern finance for the past like 50, 80 years has always been assuming the U.S. Treasury is risk-free. 
So from that aspect, it will absolutely be catastrophic. This is on the financial side. I mean, from the aspect of insurance payout, salaries for federal employees, medical insurance payout, all of that stuff is obviously going to be a huge impact on the real economy. But in the financial economy side of things also, like businesses, stocks, you name it, there, there will be a lot of carnage. But in a weird way, that's exactly why I personally believe that the Democrats and Republicans will find a path uh, to agree on, just mm. because they know that the, the negatives so far outweigh the positives that there's no other way for them to proceed. And still on that alternative scenario of what happens um, if that debt ceiling is uh, stays, what do you think is this role of the trillion dollar coin? <laughs> that means, Try breaking uh, but, a trillion dollar coin. <laughs> I think that was like 10 years ago. If I'm not, I think that came about in the right before 2011, <laughs> right, Michelle? Where this was a brilliant idea for the Fed to mint a trillion dollar coin. No, I mean, that, that's not possible, right? Like, realistically speaking, there has to be a solution. There has to be an impasse that's found. Uh, yeah. Again, it's all about electoral posturing. The Democrats are now coming out saying, oh, you know, when Trump was in power, the Democrats agreed to extend the ceiling like three times, if I'm not mistaken. Why can't you guys reverse the same? Biden's only uh, increased the amount of debt by 3% only. And that's going to happen for the next God knows how many years, right? Whoever comes into power, just the way things are set up currently, it's very, very difficult unless there's massive amounts of cutting in uh, government expenses, which is not possible at a time like this, which is, you know, the huge COVID pandemic that's going on. So from that regard, don't see any of the solution, at least for the next, at least for the, the remainder of Joe Biden's term, for sure. All right. Yeah, on my list of guests I want to have on this show, definitely Paul Krugman, the economist who proposed the trillion dollar coin. And in fact, just two days ago, Janet Yellen came out to say, uh, you know, the trillion dollar platinum coin shouldn't be considered. <laughs> she called it gimmicky, of course. All <laughs> right. So we're going to keep calm and carry on. All right. Got it. Now, uh, speaking of keeping calm, what do you think of China continuing to chase a COVID zero policy? It's kept on that course unchanged while Countries like Singapore have traded in a COVID zero policy for a COVID resilience policy, for example. And I think a lot of people want to know, does this leave China isolated? How is this going to impact Chinese, the Chinese economy? And for, for a lot of investors, you know, how is this going to impact uh, growth prospects and perhaps even Chinese tech companies? I think first and foremost, I just have to say, if anyone in the world can do it, it's going to be China, right? Just the way the... Uh, structure of the government and the, the entire societal fabric is set up, very top-down, uh, huge amounts of like this whole concept of mass mobilization, where the CCP can get millions of people to ensure, like at their behest, millions of people to try and control the provinces, the cities, lock them down, have various uh, healthcare facilities set up overnight, all of that stuff. The problem, though, is given the nature of this pandemic and especially the specific variant, which we know, I mean, I mean, look at Singapore, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's an island. It can be tightly controlled. Uh, people are willing to listen to the government, but it's just extremely difficult after a combination of factors. It's been closer now, like, what, one and a half years since uh, COVID, the whole uh, COVID virus strain hit our shores, and even in China, for that matter. It's extremely difficult for humans that are very sociable creatures to be locked down for that extended period of time. 
And you couple that of how the world right now is so different from a year and 10 months ago where there was no vaccine. There, there was no like medical understanding of how can this, even if you do get the, you know, you get the COVID uh, virus, how can you recover from it? We've, we've like really fast forwarded science, I think over in the past one year and nine months to ensure that we at least have some better understanding. Now, obviously it's not complete, right? Everything that happens in the fog of war is not going to be that straightforward. This mRNA vaccine after six months of, uh, you know, of having taken the vaccine, it seems like the efficacy seems to be dropping and booster shots are coming along. So there's a lot of unknowns that are still going on. But the bottom line is the number of ICU cases, the number of deaths, they have tapered down substantially since the creation of the vaccine. So I think with that knowledge in mind, it becomes a lot more difficult for people to buy into this aspect of I'm happy to be locked down. I mean, just look at China, right? Like back in the first wave, everyone in Wuhan, especially a lot of suffering took place, sadly, but the entire country as a whole seemed to have gotten it. Now, the two provinces that there were, you know, uh, a rebirth of these cases, sadly, of COVID cases in the past like couple of weeks, there were actually riots that took place in China, which is quite unheard of, right? Mm. So it's very difficult from a societal, like mental point of view. Now we come to the economy as a whole. Like mm. we can see numbers suffering, right? Like August retail numbers were up 2.5% versus the 7% expectation. Again, you know, not to rely just on one month numbers of August or September, but a lockdown to that extent of so many provinces, it starts making people quite afraid. Right. Because imagine you're living in a city of like eight million people, two people catch COVID and suddenly you're being told to stay indoors for the next two weeks. It's very, very like mentally challenging, which is what Singapore is dealing with, too. Right. Like Mm -hmm. now that we are at 80 percent plus uh, vaccination rate, it becomes very difficult for the government to try and impose a lockdown in spite of the three and a half thousand cases that have been taking place the last two days. There is no easy way out. The only thing is the hope that the healthcare system can be expanded enough, quick enough to ensure that ICU cases and deaths don't take place. Naturally, the economy will suffer uh, in either scenario to some extent, right? Like even if you open it up and the number of cases spike, people do get a little bit more afraid. I know I personally have like stopped my traveling out of the house that much. Mm -hmm. So naturally, there's going to be an effect on the economy. But I think the effect of a lockdown or a complete lockdown the way China does it is going to be far worse. And it's not going to be possible, right? Like the sad thing is if there was a finish line in sight that, okay, for the next one month, we will do this and then life is all back to normal and great, it's impossible. But my personal take is from the investing side of you, China still has a massive local economy. I think what's getting affected a lot more is its partner in crime, Hong Kong. Right. Where you need, you're an international center, right? It's very, very difficult. Absolutely. I was reading an American Chamber of Commerce survey uh, earlier this year, and that found that more than 40% of its members say they might leave Hong Kong. So Hong Kong really caught in this bind. Um, and in fact, Carrie Lam was just, you know, had foreign business chambers coming up to her reportedly saying the city's Quarantine mandates for returning travelers risk, of course, alienating international business and driving investment elsewhere. So uh, the risks are rising for Chinese corporates and 
Hong Kong uh, status as an international hub under threat, for sure, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, uh, let's look at Singapore, right? I mean, even over here, we've taken the more cautious approach. Mm. And just yesterday or day before, I think the U.S. government started applying a little bit more pressure on our government saying, we are allowing your visitors to come into the U.S. just with a with vaccination certificate as well as, uh, you know, a, a PCR test showing that you do not have COVID in the last 24 or 48 hours. Why aren't you reciprocating the same for our citizens? And I, I think it's a tough, you know, any any solution is going is not an easy one in this case, right? Because you got to Singapore government has to be very mindful of what the local population wants vis-a-vis the government opening up. But I think at least that conversation can be had over here. Yeah. In Hong Kong, they have to listen to what, uh, you know, the CCP is saying. And I think that makes things a lot more complicated. And in a, you know, in a weird turn of events, that actually might be quite beneficial for Singapore, of, uh, for people over here, where a lot more companies and stuff set up shop over here, in spite of the more tightened regulations that are taking place here versus, say, London and New York. And there are a lot of, you know, some negative articles that have been coming out in LinkedIn and other social media forums mm. where people are saying, you know, Singapore is a little bit too closely knit right now. We have to start opening up. We're going to be leaving the country. I think overall, though, just the way uh, the location of Singapore, the way it's handled the crisis overall, I think in the short term, at least, this bodes quite well for Singapore. And hopefully we can see the economy over here picking up in the back of that. Hmm, great point. Great way to end that segment, really. Um, so China ultimately, you know, could become very isolated for years, but its economy could support it, right? It's too big an economy for people to not be concerned about. So I think the domestic consumption is going to be able to offset the short-term headwinds of lack of travel and lack of, uh, you know, travel between, uh, say, the U.S. and China or ASEAN region in China. So I think from that perspective, uh, in the short term, at least it's not going to be damaged too much. And I think the government will eventually figure it out. Right? It's, it's, it's a bunch of very smart people. It, or maybe they have some data that we don't. But contingent to that, I think by the end of the year, or maybe by Q1 of next year, we'll start seeing a path of... Uh, the country opening up. So short-term-wise, domestic consumption takes over. Longer-term-wise, I think every government has to come to terms with the fact that COVID is not going anywhere. We can have 82%, 83% vaccination rates, yet there will be a certain number of cases. We can't stay locked in forever. I think in terms of the Chinese economy in general, the bigger team, I I think they're going to stop talking about COVID in a couple of months' time, for the large part, mm. I think the bigger theme around China and the way its economy and hence investing is going to be shaping up is this whole aspect of common prosperity. And right. that's when you were asking about, you know, technology yeah. companies, what's happening over there. I mean, look at Alibaba, right? Like it's trading at, uh, what, 140 uh, Hong Kong dollars right now in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. This was at like literally 300 plus just a couple of months back. Mm. They've had to pay close to like $15, $15 billion, if I'm not mistaken, to achieve this common prosperity goal. Tencent, I think, had to pay $7 billion. That's a lot of money. I mean, even in spite of it being like a $500 billion company, the market cap, that is, it's still a lot of capital right? that has to go for this. And there is no choice because if that's what the CP wants, that's what the CCP But overall, though, I think from an investing perspective, 
I still really do like Chinese technology companies, Alibaba especially, because if CCP can pull this off and actually make the middle class a lot stronger, uh, a lot more economically better off than what it has been, and there's been tremendous amount of growth in the past 40, 50 years, but they can keep that trajectory, reduce the wealth divide between the haves and the have-nots, that stands to bore really well for the likes of Alibaba and Tencent. I think what might be a little bit more at risk is the ultra high-end brands, but, you know, because of this whole clamp down on uh, too much, uh, uh, like, extroverted spending. But I do feel that these technology companies, which form the backbone of uh, the Chinese economy, especially on the back of so many, like, SME companies being based out of there and, like, using their services, using the platform, middle-class consumers actively using these uh, platforms for e-commerce purposes or transportation purposes, I think in the long run, this will actually come out to be quite well for these businesses. And Alibaba trading at like 15 PE at $500 billion, I think it's a no-brainer. Well, what a great overview there. And speaking of tech stocks, um, I read a survey of corporate chief information offices all agreeing to strong momentum for Microsoft, given its uh, place in cloud computing and collaboration. And um, we saw Tuesday a really good day for mega cap tech stocks, not just Microsoft, Netflix, Alphabet, Apple, all up as well. But specifically for Microsoft, uh, besides you, of course, we one of our, our only other favorite commentator is perhaps Jim Cramer <laughs> of Mad Money, who says that he thinks a recent weakness in Microsoft shares has created a favorable situation for investors. Now, we talked about Microsoft uh, and its subscription service raising the price for Office 365. So Kramer is positive on Microsoft. Do you agree with him? I, I do. I, and the point, and it's for a large part to the point that you mentioned about them being able to increase the pricing of a software that's basically used around the globe still, and yet being able to come away from it without too many complications. That being said, though, in the cloud, where they're suffering or they're facing, I should say, a lot more competition, they had to slash their commission rate that they charge from 20% to 3%, and Google had to follow through with that. So in the space of the cloud, which I think is going to get a lot more competitive, there might not be as much of a initial revenue driver. And in fact, because of the commissions being reduced, there'll be a drop in that. But it's all about creating that ecosystem. Office 365 is their golden goose that just keeps laying a lot more profit for the shareholders where everyone just uses PowerPoint. Everyone just uses Microsoft Word across the globe. So from that aspect, they've got a very captive audience whom they can charge extra money for. The cloud where maybe they're not as competitive as say AWS that is definitely at the forefront of that technology. They reduce the prices, get more into a price war in that specific sphere. And I think one other big advantage that Microsoft has Mm -hmm. as compared to the other tech giants, especially Facebook, obviously, given the recent news, is no baggage of social media. They've Mm. gone through this issue of, you know, uh, monopolistic behavior. The government has come after them, slapped them with fines. According to Bill Gates, that was one of the most difficult times he's ever had to live with. Maybe not currently given his divorce, but at least prior to his, from his business life perspective. So they've gone through that. So that coupled with 
let's be honest, right? Satya Nadella has made Microsoft cool again. I mean, there are people who I'm talking to in the tech space that are like, before they only used to be talking about uh, Google and Amazon and Facebook, Netflix, Microsoft is now definitely up there too. So the culture has improved. Uh, the company seems to have turned around quite well. The share price has already gone up like 5x in the past, what, four, five years. But even though it's like over $2 trillion market cap, of all the tech companies that are out there, I'd still think that it's one of the more decently priced ones. And the numbers prove it, right? Like they raised their quarterly dividend by 20, 10% uh, last month. They announced a $60 billion stock buyback. Still, I mean, $60 billion is a lot of money, but tiny relative to their market cap. But still, it just goes to show that management is quite confident of future uh, cash flow generation uh, possibilities for the business. So putting all of those things together, I think Microsoft does seem to be quite a good buy in the tech space. Thank you for that. And speaking of ecosystems that the whole world uses, let's talk about Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg has defended Facebook from accusations that it puts profits before user safety. After Francis Hogan sat uh, across an interview in 60 Minutes and shared what she thought, uh, she, what, what shocked the world really about um, Facebook executives really knowing their content could harm children and weaken democracy. Here she is talking a little bit about the change in the algorithm in 2016. You know, you have your phone. You might see only 100 pieces of content if you sit and scroll off for, you know, five minutes. But Facebook has thousands of options it could show you. The algorithm picks from those options based on the kind of content you've engaged with the most in the past. And one of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement, a reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content yeah. is enticing to people and keep, enticing. keeps them on the platform. Yes, Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. All right, let's talk a little bit about um, your views on, on the, this moment. Do you think that this is um, the equivalent of the tobacco moment? Is this Facebook's tobacco moment? <laughs> very, very tough to say. Uh, I think on the one hand, Facebook and just generally, right, like tech companies that are out there right now, they've created something even more powerful than nicotine from the aspect of the amount of time that we spend on our phones. And this is across the board. I'm not singling out Facebook necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, TikTok kind of does the same thing, right? Uh, all social media platforms that are out there, especially Facebook, given that it has Instagram also, I guess. From the aspect of, I mean, this fake news is one big issue, uh, as this your sound snippet was mentioning about just wanting to, you know, listen to more damaging news so that they can stay on the platform a lot longer, hence click on ads a lot more. That's a big issue. Scientific studies have proven that, especially for young girls, social media tends to be an extremely negative influence because of body shaming and all of that stuff. It's an extremely, extremely difficult problem to solve because for all the negatives on the one hand, on the other side, there are a lot of success stories where people have managed to find relatives that they were not in touch with for many years. Right. Uh, 
countries have been able to communicate with its people better. Uh, small and medium enterprises, right? Like the same algorithms that are targeting, sadly, people to look at negative news and stay on the platform a lot longer, the same algorithm, in a way, is helping small and medium enterprises by placing targeted ads on consumers in that region rather than having to pay a lot more money for a lot less return with nationwide networks, right, like TV ads and stuff. So I think, you know, and this is always this issue between the pure financial aspect of a business Mm -hmm. on how it's helping small and medium enterprises and obviously helping Facebook too because of the commissions they can charge in the advertising and marketing spend. But on the other hand, this societal issue that it's caused. And I personally believe this is something that the government really has to step in Mm -hmm. and try to control because there is no other way out for this the government needs to get involved across the board, right? Not just the US, the EU, uh, all, all governments across the board, they have to come up with a solution on how much they want social media to be able to influence people's lives while at the same time trying to ensure that the underlying uh, business that they've created, which has actually increased the GDP of the world by a lot doesn't get destroyed completely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what China is at the forefront of it, right? Where it's coming in, be it the gaming clampdown, be it forcing these platforms to open up themselves to others, not being a closed ecosystem. If you're going to be issuing loans, you want to try to be a fintech startup, you know what? You become the world's largest money fund. Money fund. You have a money market fund. You have to start revealing that information to the credit bureau. Like all of these things, I think, are 100% required because there is just too much, you can't call it a monopoly, but there's just too much power residing in too few hands right now. And that's exactly why we have the government to get involved and trying to control that. China also has no problem saying we're going to ban, ban cryptocurrency totally, right? Well, the U.S. takes an approach that says, no, we're not going to ban things totally. We're not going to ban cryptocurrency at least. But what Hogan is asking for is for regulation, for Facebook, right? She says, a company with such frightening influence over so many people needs real oversight. So the question is, what form does that regulation come in and how does that impact the business moving forward? We saw Facebook shares closing up uh, slightly to about $333. Do you think largely investors are looking away from this moment? I think in the the share price has corrected a bit over the past one month odd. Personally, I'm staying away from it because I think there are going to be a lot more long-term repercussions of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just this specific instance, but just going back to uh, Trump getting elected himself to begin with, right? And then this whole Trump versus Biden saga that took place uh, last year. I, I think once politics is involved because of people getting elected or not getting elected, Trump not being allowed on Twitter, uh, him being ban- a lifespan ban on Facebook, him going to Florida, uh, to the court system over there, trying to uh, turn that around, free speech. I mean, there are a lot of issues that social media... Uh, the, the government has not been able to monitor or regulate of social media because it's all still relatively new. All these laws that were put into place have been there for like the last hundreds of years. This aspect of social media connectivity between people, algorithms, how much time they're spending on their smartphone mm-hmm. is all in the past like 10, 15 years. But I think it's high time now that the governments do get involved in this space because it is having 
a lot of impact on people, good as well as bad, which, and hence I completely agree with the whistleblower, that it has to be regulated. Easier said than done, obviously, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's why we have such huge governments and uh, very smart people as ministers, presidents, prime ministers, etc., and the civil service to try to figure this out, where there has to be a middle path that's created. And like you said, right, the U.S. is not something is not someone who's going to ban stuff, right? It just doesn't. The, the economy, the society is not structured that way. Right. But from the aspect of clamping down on regulation, that's something that the country is very familiar with, be it tobacco, be it uh, gun control, uh, any sector, uh, be it technology like Microsoft, as I was highlighting uh, 20 years ago. Every company that's become too big for its own good get the government involved, if for nothing else, just to slow down the growth of the company, right? Where when they know that there are so many eyeballs of the government looking at it, they will tend to at least try and do things, one would hope, in a smarter and more benefiting to society manner. And I think that's going to happen to social media across the board. Interesting. So you're staying away from Facebook, uh, staying careful when it comes to Facebook stock because of the possible pivots that it's going to have to make? In the long run, I think over the next five or ten, this is not the last uh, that we've heard of this, mm-hmm. I think over the next five years, it's going to go down the path of what happened to Microsoft uh, you know, back in the day, where the share price literally was stagnant for 10, 15 years because of the amount of DOJ, uh, the Department of Justice, other government uh, bodies opening up its books, trying to see what's happening over there, trying to clamp down on the effect it can have on businesses, people, society in general. And I think that has to happen in social media at some point. Thank you very much. What a masterclass. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Thanks for being with us. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.